the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locust and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when they came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opened and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The Spirit immediately drove him out into the wilderness. And he was in the wilderness forty days being tempted by Satan. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering to him. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we gather around your word this morning, we ask that you will speak. Your servants are here to listen to you and to learn from you. And so instruct us and lead us in your way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. It's episode 398 of This American Life. Ira Glass chronicles the story of a man named Don Crunk. Don Crunk is a criminal. He was sentenced 25 years to life for a murder he committed in a burglary gone wrong. After 25 years, Crunk, who lives in the state of California in the penitentiary system, his record began to be reviewed. He was a model prisoner. He had done everything right. And so every six months, his record was brought before the parole board, and he was denied. On the seventh time, Crunk was approved for parole. 27 years in prison. He was elated. And he was elated despite the fact that there was an incredibly difficult step in front of him. In the state of California, in order to be officially and finally paroled, first the parole board must approve you, but then the governor of California must approve as well. And the governor turns down 75% of the request. This is no commentary on the state of California, but this is just simply the fact. 75% of the approved parolees from the parole board are turned down by the governor. So Ira Glass interviews Don Crunk in this space between the parole board approval and as he's waiting on the California governor. And what he says was so interesting. He says, so for, for the first time in 27 years, I have hope. Hope was awakened in him, and he began to dream about life on the outside again. And he said that the smells and the food and the behavior of prison suddenly caught up with him. He had ignored them for 27 years, but suddenly 
He had the taste of freedom. And yet he knew that that taste of freedom could be dashed and probably would be. That most certainly, three quarters of the time, the governor turns down parolees. And so he understands how awful his situation is. The noise, the comments, the food, the lack of freedom. He sees it all for what it is, and yet he knows he may be doomed to continue to live in it. And he asks this question in a tone of desperation to Ira Glass. He says, how have I been doing this for all these years? He doesn't know how he's been doing it, how he's been living in, the, in his cesspool. And it begs the question, was this cruel? Was it cruel for the parole board to let him know that he had been approved? Because he most likely was going to be rejected. Was it cruel for them to give him a taste of hope and then confine him back in the prison? Many people would say Christianity operates in a very similar way. It comes from the critical side, the philosophical side of life, where people would say that Christians extend hope to people, and it's all very cruel. That it's the cruelest thing that you can do. Friedrich Nietzsche, the great German philosopher, says it this way, Hope is the worst of all evils, for it prolongs the suffering of man. It is fundamentally cruel to extend to people a vision of a different future because it simply stalls their dealing with the problems in the present. That to give people a hope that's really just fantasy, that will never come true, to hold that out in front of them, Nietzsche is saying that it's immoral. And friends, that's the question for us. Christianity is a religion filled with hope. It's defined by hope. Paul says that by hope we are saved in Romans 8. And are we doing something cruel to the world? Are we selling them a bag of goods that we really can't deliver on? Mark 1, 1 through 15 provides the answer for us. Because we Christians do continue to hope. And in the middle of a world broken in half by sin, we've maintained that that's the proper posture. But why? Why do we insist on living in hope? And the Gospel of Mark provides the simple answer. It's actually found in verse 1 and in verse 14 and 15 because this is the prologue, the beginning word to the Gospel of Mark, and Mark is setting out his major emphasis. In verse 1, he says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In verse 14 and 15, now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Three times you hear the word gospel. Gospel is not necessarily a genre of literature, even though we associate the four Gospels with it. It's a term actually from the Old Testament, and it's important for us to unpack that. But this is why Mark is saying that we Christians should hope. In the middle of a world riddled by sin, there is this thing called gospel, which simply means good news. Good news. 
And when he writes his gospel, his good news, which is about Jesus and the message of the coming kingdom, Mark is announcing that the best news of God's great king, of his long-awaited promises, the old story that reaches back into the Old Testament is now being fulfilled in the arrival of Jesus. And so let's look at the roots of this term gospel. There's a couple for us to explore. The first is in the Roman world. When an emperor would ascend to the throne, a document was published and sent around the empire. Can you imagine what that document was called? A gospel. It was good news that the Roman lord, the Caesar, was on the throne, had ascended the throne, or when it was Caesar's birthday, or when a son was born to the emperor, a gospel was published. It was announcing a royal event. That's the Roman background. There's also a Jewish background. If you turn with me to Isaiah 40, you'll notice that when John the Baptist comes onto the scene, introducing his ministry that was a forerunner to Jesus, he begins quoting from Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 was a prophetic poem about the great day when God would renew Israel and allow the people to return from exile. And so it begins, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Okay, this is the entire scene. God was forgiving the sins of Israel and allowing them to return. And Isaiah 40 through 66 takes you on a journey of all that was going to happen in the return and the blessing of God upon his people. They were going to come back across the desert to be reinstalled in Israel. And look in verse 5. It says, The glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. That God was going to return and dwell with his people once again. And then in verse 9, because of all this, Israel was instructed to do something. Get up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of gospel. Good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of gospel. Good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah. Now this is the gospel that they were to proclaim Behold your God. And so the message of Isaiah with the gospel is that God was returning to dwell with his people in Israel. Okay? And that would have been thought of historically as him returning to the temple. Now we find another instance of gospel in Isaiah chapter 52. In verse 7 and verse 8. How beautiful upon the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news or gospel, who publishes peace, who brings the gospel of happiness, who publishes salvation. And the publication, the message that's going out is given to us then at the end of verse 7, who says to Zion, your God reigns. So we have behold your God and your God reigns. That gospel is an announcement of an event. And friends, this is where Christianity is so unique. The gospel in Christianity is not advice about how to be a spiritual or whole person. It doesn't give you a path to relate to the divine. That's not what the gospel is about. 
The gospel is not also instruction about how to make the world a better place. The gospel is an event. It's an announcement about God establishing his reign on the earth inside the creation that ran away from him. It is God's great recovery project of grabbing the creation back, and he does so by force, bringing it back and reconciling it to himself. And when Mark picks up all of this context from Isaiah, any good first century Jew knew exactly what he was saying that God was intruding into the creation. He was breaking in, and he was seizing what belonged to him, and he was taking it back, reconciling it to himself. This was dramatic, cosmic language. It was an intervention. It was an interruption. God breaking into history. And friends, the difficult part, though, about the message is we have all of this great, grand context of the return of God to dwell with his people. And then look in verse 9 in Mark chapter 1. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee. We've already learned in verse 1 that the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, That could just be the gospel about Jesus Christ. Jesus is the gospel. He is the good news. And yet, he's from Nazareth, a very common, humble, ordinary place. When I said this this morning in the School of Discipleship, I said, I'm not sure what the Florida equivalent of Nazareth is, and I was told that it was Palatka. I don't even know if I pronounced it right. I've not been there. I don't know about it. But Nazareth was a backwater. The town is not even known of in any ancient inscription. We know very little about it. We know about Galilee, but it was a place that was despised by most of Israel because it was seen as compromised by the Gentiles. And so we have these great cosmic statements taking place that the great king who God has promised would reign over the nations of the earth has returned. And guess what? He's from Nazareth. Really? that the extraordinary has broke into the ordinary in an unacceptable way. And that's what we have unfolding in front of us, that this is the good news, that the long-promised king who would reign over the world, that God returning to dwell with his people once again, and that the time of the Gentiles when they would fold into Israel and all the nations of the earth would be blessed, That's what Isaiah is about. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. That's what he began doing in verse 14. And so he's announcing that the king is here. And friends, it's puzzling. It's puzzling to the people throughout the gospel of Mark. It's still puzzling to us today because the king comes in very unexpected, upside-down, inside-out ways. We struggle with his rule. And it's good for us to be honest, because as democratic Americans, we struggle with the idea of kings and authority. Six months ago, I moved from the state of Virginia. It's not a state, it's a commonwealth, excuse me. They're very proud of that fact. And on the commonwealth's flag, there is a seal. You may be familiar with it. It is the goddess Virtue, 
standing over the tyrant King George with a spear jabbed in his chest and her foot on him. Then in Latin, it says, Sic semper tyrannis, which means thus always with tyrants. That's the celebration of the state of Virginia, thus so with tyrants. It reflects something of American attitudes about governance and how it should be reflected in our world. But friends, the gospel is not about democracy. The gospel is about a king. He says that he has a divine right to rule over the world, that it's God's faithfulness to his promises to Abraham, to Moses, and to David that have now been fulfilled, that God is going to right the creation through this people Israel who had gone wrong. And now he became a Jew. And all the promises of Isaiah were brought into full focus. And they all connected and met up in King Jesus. That's the good news. That's the reason that Christians have hope. Is that there is a king who can make things right. There is a king who can reconcile heaven and earth. There's a king who can put us in right relationship with God. And there's only one response that's appropriate. We learn it from Jesus himself in verse 15. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, which means turn from all your other loyalties, and believe the good news. It's an uncompromising message. If he is the king, then he rules over all the nations of the earth as Psalm 2 said the Davidic son would. His inheritance were the nations of the earth. That's what Jesus says he's coming to take. And so our response to that kingly authority is either to turn and follow him, believing and trusting in him, joining his people, or to simply dismiss it. And the Christian reason for hope is we believe that Jesus is the king who can deliver on these great promises. And so why would we follow him, though? Why, would, why do we think that Jesus can make good on these promises? Why do we think he's qualified? There's three things in the passage this morning that we'll see as to the case that Mark is building about why we should trust this Jesus, why we should follow him as his king. And this is somewhat a political statement, and so we'll consider it as we would consider our own politicians. We're going to look at the king's platform. What does he say he's running on? We're going to look at his endowments for the job. Why is he qualified? And finally, we'll look at his campaign trail. We'll get a preview of everything that is about to come, what he does. So first, let's consider his platform. In other words, what does Jesus say that he enters the world to do? The temptation passage of Jesus is just after his baptism. The Spirit anoints him, sets him apart for his ministry to be Israel's prophet, Israel's priest, Israel's king. And then Jesus is sent out into the wilderness. And in verse 13, we learn something strange. And he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. He has met his great enemy. And he was with the wild animals, and the angels were ministering 
to him. People often puzzle, why are the animals mentioned? What is going on here? What's happening and taking place? And if you'll turn with me back to Isaiah, it's important for us to read in chapter 11. Is the promise in Isaiah 11 of a righteous branch that was going to come from the stump of Jesse. That is, that God was going to restore a king to Israel who would rise from David's line. So verse 1 says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And then drop down into verse 3. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. That this righteous root that rises from David was going to establish equity and justice for everyone that he wouldn't be fooled by appearances, that he can see through all the shams of men, that he knows right and he knows wrong, and he has the ability to discern and to make justice on the earth. That's part of his platform. Verse 6, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Not only would he establish equity and justice, but he would renew all of the creation he would restore creation's innocence as to what God had made when He originally created it. That there would no longer be enmity between human beings and the, and the physical world, the animals or the physical creation. And so when Mark tells us that Jesus was at peace with the wild animals, this is what he echoes back to. That creation's king, the righteous branch from David, has arrived that He's come to restore Eden and make all things right, establishing justice and peace and harmony and shalom for all of creation. Jesus' platform is much bigger than any reform that you can imagine in politics. It is all-embracing. Everything about the creation will come correct. And this is the reason for Christian hope is we see this platform of this great king, what he says he will do. But it raises a question. We're familiar enough with politics to be able to say, well, promises are just that. <laughs> They're promises. That if someone runs for office, if they are a king or a politician, whatever they are, they have to make good on what they say. And so Mark also includes several things for us that allow us to know that Jesus is endowed for his task, that he can make good on it. And he again heavily uses the book of Isaiah, these prophetic promises. 
In Mark 1, three times the Spirit of God is mentioned. If you look first in verse 8, John tells of one who was going to baptize in the Spirit. This is picking up from Isaiah 61, where the one who baptizes in the Spirit is the one who possesses the Spirit himself. And then in verse 10, at the baptism, Jesus receives the Spirit. He's anointed, set apart by the Spirit for his kingly work. And then in verse 12, the Spirit drives him into the wilderness, and so there's heavy activity of the Spirit. And that's because in Isaiah 11, in Isaiah 42, in Isaiah 61, we have the promise that the Davidic son would receive the Spirit of God in order to be fit for his task. It would be a spirit of justice and equity, of understanding and wisdom. It would be the spirit that endowed him to do everything that God had commissioned him to do to reign and rule over his world with justice and equity. That is how Jesus is endowed. He's given divine empowerment. And we start to see the shade that Jesus is fully a human man, and yet he's also fully God. Something unique in our midst has interrupted, has broken onto the scene and God has made good on all of his promises to the world. We also see that Jesus is endowed in an interesting way. If you look in verse 7, John was being asked whether he was the Messiah. And he preached saying, after me comes he who is mightier, or that could be translated stronger than I. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. And so there is a statement there by John about one who was stronger. And Mark is a very clever writer. He puts together his gospel in very literary ways. In chapter 3, in verse 27, Jesus is accused of being Satan. And he says, no, Satan wouldn't cast out Satan. You have to bind the mighty man, the strong man, before you can plunder his house. And so John the Baptist speaks of the stronger one who was coming, and then Jesus says that the strong man has to be plundered by the one who is stronger. Mark then uses this word again in the Gerasene demoniac in chapter 5, where it says, he had strength and no one could contain him, and yet who subdues him? Jesus. He's the stronger one. He's stronger than all evil. He's stronger than the dead of our sins. He's stronger than Satan himself. He comes to do battle on behalf of God to win back the creation. These are his endowments for the job. He was given everything that he needed in order to be victorious. He's cut out for it. <laughs> and finally, we have to consider his campaign his rise to power. Not only is he in, do we have to look at his endowments, and not only do we have to consider his platform, but how does he go about his work? How does he set apart, or how does he set out to accomplish his great platform? And this is ultimately what the entire Gospel of Mark will be about. But in his opening word, his prologue, Mark gives us a picture of how this great king will affect his rule over the nations of the earth. 
Some of you may already be intimidated by this language of such a king and an authority. Is it just naked power? Is it just brutal? Is it just violent like all other tyrannies that we know in our world? Mark gives us a very different picture, and he does so in several ways. The first is at Jesus' baptism. Jesus identifies with the people of Israel in their sins, though he himself was sinless. And so he comes compassionately, entering into our frame, acknowledging who we are. He was fully a man. And as he is baptized, we read in verse 10, and when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens opening or tearing and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased." It's interesting because even God, when He speaks in this story of Jesus' baptism, doesn't use original lines. He quotes from the Old Testament. You are my beloved Son is just pulled straight from Psalm chapter 2. This was a statement as Jesus was anointed by the Spirit that this is my Davidic Son who will rule the nations. And then with whom I am well pleased comes from Isaiah 42 verse 1 which was the Spirit's endowment upon the Davidic Son to bring justice to the earth. And then it says, He will be a broken reed. And so we have a strong statement already taking place here about the kingly authority of Jesus and how His authority will be exercised, that it will be brought to the earth through His own suffering service of the world. Mark points to this in other ways as well. When he says the heavens were opened, the word is actually for opened is a little stronger. It does mean tear. So the heavens are torn open and there is this declaration that this is my beloved son. As I mentioned, Mark is a very creative writer. And if you'll turn over to chapter 15. He bookends his gospel with these words, the tearing and the declaration that this is the Son of God. He does so in the prologue, and then he does so at Jesus' death. Look in, verse, in chapter 15, verses 38 and 39. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. That's the word that was translated opened in chapter 1 from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly this man was the Son of God. Mark is communicating something strong to us, that there is a revelation taking place here. The heavens opened and God declared that this was his Son. And now the heavens have once been opened, the temple of the curtain being ripped in two. And there is this revelation of the Son of God on the cross. That this is the path. This is the way of Jesus' kingship. That His sovereignty is never, a, never an excuse for Him to lead others to suffer. But His sovereignty is exercised in order to free others, to, lead, to be their servant, to direct and guide them to flourishing, that they would be reconciled to God. Jesus, as the great King, absorbs the death of our world, the death that was due to sin, the judgment that rightly falls upon us 
because of our rebellion against God. He absorbs that into Himself on the cross, and then He destroys it in rising from the dead. He is the stronger one. And He defeats the great enemy Satan who lies behind all these evil powers. This is the story that Mark tells. This is the way of Jesus' campaign. that He doesn't put out violence. He receives violence into Himself in order to destroy it. This is the way of our King. This is what we're invited into. He's been given the Spirit to promote justice, and He establishes justice in His own death. That His platform to renew the world is won through the sufferings of His cross. Friends, this is why Christians can hope. Because their great King has taken all the death of the world onto Himself. And He's destroyed it. He's broken its power in two. And this is the story that changes everything. God's interruption into history. His fulfilling of His ancient promises. Making good on them. And that Jesus arrests us. And we have to deal with Him. Because either we repent and believe and we get on board with who He is and all of its significance and all of its implications and we begin to follow Him. And we'll find out what that means over the next weeks together. Or we simply dismiss Him. Because let's not be mistaken. The Gospel does not present itself to us as an option. It's not one store to go into in a mall of other religious choices. It's either reality, an announcement, and an event that has happened, and God has invaded the creation to bring it back to Himself, or it's nothing. And this is all foolishness. For the Christian who repents and believes, this is the ground of hope. It's the ground of being reconciled to God. It's the ground of hope after death. It's the ground of hope for the world to come, that Jesus the great King has made all things right, and He will make every manner of thing right. That's what we long for. And so Don Crunk was dropped off in a strange place, given hope, and yet ready to be dashed. Ultimately, his parole was denied. Friends, that's not what's true about you. Your God makes good on what He says because Jesus is the one who can do it.